0: to the Gospel of John and the first chapter, John chapter 1. One of our family's Christmas traditions has been to have each of our children take a couple of the figures from the nativity set and then as the Christmas story is read, have them bring the appropriate figure as it's mentioned in the reading and put it back up in to the nativity set especially when they were younger I can't remember if this has been done the last few years Um, one of the highlight items in the stocking was to find out who got baby Jesus in their stocking all the rest of them would be there in the nativity set but in order to get all of those figures back up there we would have to read significant portions of Luke 2 followed by Matthew 2 And because Matthew and Luke record most of the historical details and human interest stories that serve as the backdrop to the Christmas story, uh, very often our preaching during the season settles into one or both of those books. This year, we're turning to John's Gospel in an effort to examine the foundation of the Christmas story and really the foundation of our Christian faith. Because John roots it deeper than the mere historical events of that story. And there really is no deeper foundation than the first 18 verses, in particular, of the Gospel of John. And this is a little bit lengthier quote, but J.C. Ryle said this about John's Gospel. He said, Nowhere in the Bible shall we find such clear and distinct statements of our Lord Jesus Christ's divine nature." In no portion of scripture is it so deeply important to know each word and even each tense employed in each sentence. Uh, it is perhaps not too much to say that not a single word could be altered in the first five verses of John's gospel without opening the door to some heresy. And so you can hear him say, if you, if you want to talk about the identity of, ...of Jesus Christ, there's no more important place to look than in these early verses of the Gospel of John. This morning we started in verses 1 and 2 with an introduction to his nature. And I trust that you have some notes in your margin wherever you have a journal. But even right in your margin of your Bible, it would help to stand out to you. We noted, first of all, in terms of his nature, that he is eternal... That opening phrase, as you can see again, in the beginning was the Word. So not in the beginning the Word came into existence, but already existing was the Word in the beginning. That is why he must be eternal. Secondly, we noted in terms of his nature that he has coexisted with the Father from all eternity. That second phrase says, and the Word, personally distinct in some respect." from God, the Word has nevertheless been turned towards, they've been turned towards one another in a relationship of mutual love and delight. And then, thirdly, He is eternal, He is coexistent with the Father, and then thirdly, He is God. That last phrase, without an article, and the Word was, in terms of His, His person, He was God, He is deity. So by nature, he is the eternal Son of God, one with the Father. He is, as theologians would say, very God of very God. He is God himself. But then beginning in verse 3, as we'll pick it up here tonight, we're introduced to his relationship to everything else. And the key to recognizing the theme of verses 3 through 9 is just noting the most repeated word. And uh, you can pick that up beginning the end of verse four, uh, right down on through verse number nine. Follow along as we read, "All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness. To bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. I think it's pretty obvious, and you would agree that the most repeated word is light. You see it at the end of verse 4, sometimes just circling these or underlining them in some fashion, drawing a little note, helps it stand out. Uh, You can see it again in verse 5, then uh, again in verse 7, and then two times each in verses 8 and 9. So the theme is, first of all, that Jesus is light. And in keeping with the phrases of both verse 4 and verse 9, he is every man's light. Look at verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. But then down in verse 9, That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. So he is every man's light. And all of that is rooted in that opening statement of verse 3 in this section. All of that is rooted in his being the creator of everything. So if I were to give a lengthy statement of the theme that captures verses 3 through 9... It is this, that by virtue of being the creator, Jesus is every man's light. That's the summary of this section of scripture. By virtue of being the creator, Jesus is every man's light. And as we start to explore that, we can see in verse number four, in the combination of the two expressions there, that he is the light of all men, because, first of all, all life resides in him. In him, verse 4, was life. Now, as believers who are familiar with Bible expressions, we probably go, our minds go to thinking that in him is life. The apostle is referring to eternal life. In Jesus is eternal life. And, and it is true, as we saw this morning, that because he is the Christ, the Son of God, believing in Him, is, uh, is the means to eternal life. But here, when we get to that opening statement of verse 4, in Him was life, we should not be thinking here about eternal. It's not that specific. It's broader than that. There's a handful of Greek words that are used to translate and communicate concepts, I'm sorry, of, uh, associated with life. And the one that is used here is actually the most frequently used, and it is as generic as it comes. So it just has, the re- it has reference to the existence of life in general, even in its most physical form. So if you just want <clears throat> to think about, uh, you know, plant life, the smallest of plants on the earth, uh, the smallest of cells in the body that can only be seen under a microscope— In Jesus is even that kind of life. The the energy that enables organisms to grow and reproduce and absorb and use nutrients, um, that which allows more complex organisms to perform more complex activities, all of that resides in Jesus Christ. So Christ is not only the source and sustainer of eternal life, but he is actually the source of what some have just described as the principle of life. All life resides in him because, verse 3, he made it and he sustains everything that continues to live. Psalm 36 and verse 9 says that with thee is the fountain of life. And that is true, again, from the smallest, most simple forms of life all the way up to the most complex. All life Is because of his bringing it into existence and sustaining it. And the second expression helps us to understand that there is a connection now to men in particular. This life in verse 4, this life that is in him, continuing on, that life is the light of men. And now you have... A distinction made between just life in general to the impact of that life on mankind in particular. He's the fountain of all life. But that fountain of all life and the life that is in him has an impact upon mankind like no other creature on earth. It enlightens man in a unique way. The light that life shines into man is what makes man unique out of all of God's creatures. We could, since we're just talking about life and the principle of life, we could talk about what we as men have in common with plants. And we have some things in common. We, we need nutrients. There's the capacity for reproduction. I mean, we could talk about what we have in common with plants. We could talk about what we have in common with certain animals. Animals that have a heart that beats and lungs that inhale and exhale air and so on we could talk about ways in which animals actually exceed us i mean there are animals that are bigger and animals that are stronger and animals that are faster and and i'm saying all of that to make the point again that what makes man unique out of plant life animal life Out of all of what God has made, what makes man unique is not a matter of just physical features. What makes man unique is light in our inner person that far excels every other living being. That light has to do with our minds and our intelligence and even our spirits. That, that light is reflected in things like self-awareness, self-reflection, self-consciousness. You can, you can sit down and, as it were, um, outside of yourself, reflect upon your life. All right? So, <clears throat> Adam, all the way back in Genesis, he's giving names to all the animals that the Lord had created. And the Lord puts Adam into a deep sleep and brings Eve to him. And, and as Adam reflected upon himself, as he reflected upon all those animals, as he reflected upon Eve, he concluded that since I am man and she is taken out of me, I will call her what? I will call her woman. He knew there was something unique there. And he was able to reflect upon that. When, when the devil wanted to tempt Eve to turn away from God. He appealed to this ability in her life and and, and appealed to her thinking about her life and how her life might improve, he said, without God. He essentially said to Eve, don't listen to God's restrictions. Don't take his threat seriously. If you just free yourself from God's restrictions, you'll really progress in life. And Eve thought through the devil's argument and acted upon it. And I'm saying again, you know this, but there's no other creature on earth that can do that. All right. You, you might think, and I I've mentioned before our little dog, our Licorice, our little dachshund. And just last night I was saying, walk. And she went crazy. I forgot you, you have to spell walk. You can't say walk to her. <clears throat> she hears that. She goes to the doors, jumping up and down. And um, and finally I, I went ahead and opened the door. I was coming to get Jonathan from church here And um, I said, all right ride and she made a beeline to the car She was going to go for a ride. All right. So there's a certain walk and there's a certain ride and there <clears throat> but you know what I promise you that licorice isn't picking up the phone and calling some of her doggy friends in the neighborhood and talking about us Like we're talking about her. I know that's absurd But that's part of the capacity in man that is unique. It's part of the light that is in man. And the fact that we can do this, that we can reflect upon ourselves, gives us the ability to register moral judgments, even about ourselves. This is what the Bible refers to as the conscience. Romans 2 and verse 15 says, even people that don't have the law, they've never heard the law of God, they nevertheless have a conscience that either excuses or else what? Accuses their actions and their thoughts. Again, think back to to Eve. Immediately after Eve and then Adam ate the forbidden tree, uh, the forbidden fruit, they displayed a conscience. They knew that they were naked and ashamed. They sewed fig leaves together to try to cover their shame. When they were confronted, they tried to shift the blame because they were fearful of the consequences of their actions. Again, they are self-reflective, and in that state, they were able to make moral judgments, even if their judgments were skewed. And because men are self-reflective and capable of making moral judgments, and I know this is as challenging as anything to stick our minds through, but stay right through it because this is all headed somewhere that is critical. Because we are self-reflective and capable of making moral judgments, men are also God-conscious. Men know that there is a standard of moral judgment and a judge outside of themselves to whom they are accountable. And all three of these characteristics of mankind go together, and they are characteristics that are universal. During our days in Canada, we ministered to a believing lady from India whose husband was an unbeliever and was a nominal Hindu. And one day... He told me that he knew that there was a creator to whom we are accountable. Because he said in every culture... People register agreement with the same basic Ten Commandments. And we're having this discussion. They actually just had their firstborn, and we had little opportunity to even get to know him. But they let us come visit their baby. I'm sitting in the hospital room. And in the hospital room, this man just says to me, <coughs> we, I know there's a God because in every culture we have the same Ten Commandments. And you think about that. Different cultures may define adultery in different terms. But we all agree that whatever adultery is, it is what? It is wrong. And everybody knows, don't go there. That's not right. Everyone has some knowledge as well that there is a judge that is going to render an ultimate verdict. Sometimes when we can't get anywhere with somebody else, we just say, there's a God in heaven that knows what you did. And everybody at some level appeals to God as an ultimate judge. Even without a Bible... Men instinctively recognize, again, these universal qualities of self-awareness and moral judgment. And and we know that those qualities are marred to some degree in every man. But there has to be a God who possesses all of those qualities in unlimited perfection. Shall not the God of all the earth do what? He will do right. Then every man knows that. And if someone, again, thinks that, you know, Pastor, you're just locked up in a systematic theology book now and going way over by his head, and maybe even overstating, the, the life of someone like Helen Keller makes the case very well. She was born in 1880 and at the age of a year and a half became blind and deaf and mute. And at the age of seven... You know the story, Ann Sullivan came into her life and took a special interest in her and began to communicate with her by by making marks in the palm of her hand. And as Helen became accustomed to the touch in her hand, it became more clear to her that those particular movements this woman was making in her hand were symbols for other objects. And again, if you've ever seen a play or you've read something of it, you know some of the first ones were mother and water, and even doll. And in time, she moved from there to become a very educated woman. And when she was still a young girl, her father took her to the Boston preacher Phillips Brooks so that Phillips Brooks could teach her about God. And as Brooks worked with Helen Keller, there was a day when... It was like light broke into her and she actually responded back in reference to Brooks trying to tell her about God. She actually responded back and said, I have always known about him. I just didn't know his name. She's there. there's only one explanation for that, and that is that everybody knows there is a supreme being that brought us into existence and to whom we're accountable, even if I don't know what to call him. And you could do what Ann Sullivan did in in Helen's hand, you could do that with an ape or a donkey or a dog, and they would never awaken to the knowledge of God. And Helen actually wrote later in life, it seems to me that there is in each of us a capacity to comprehend the impressions and emotions which have been experienced by mankind from the very beginning. The inherited capacity she referred to as sort of a sixth sense, a soul sense. That is all of those others in one, she said. Now, if that is true, that... Because of the life being sourced in Jesus, there is light in every man. And the light is self-awareness and moral judgment and the knowledge there is a God to whom we have to do. Why do so many people continue to live their lives as if in great darkness instead of in light? And there's an explanation That is at least hinted to here in verse number 5. And notice in verse 5 it says, The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There is between light and darkness a great conflict. And we're going to come back to that second phrase in, in just a minute. But notice in the first phrase that the light, Is shining in an atmosphere. Of prevailing darkness. The light shineth in darkness. That's what it has come into. And if you'll just turn over to John chapter 3. I know that you. Are familiar with this passage. But it would be good for us to see it. If we want to know again. What that darkness is. It's explained fairly clearly here in John chapter 3. Notice in verse because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. And we'll stop there. The reason why men are condemned Is because when they have opportunity to be exposed to the light, instead of embracing it, they actually recoil from it. And they recoil from the light because their deeds are what? Their deeds are evil. The, The darkness is the realm in which men hide when their deeds are evil. They run from the light. Romans 1 says that men knew God but glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, and their foolish hearts were what? Their foolish hearts were darkened. Know him, but don't honor him as God, and don't be thankful for him being God, and turn away, and their foolish hearts are darkened. The darkness is within man's own soul. It isn't that people just you know aren't coming to church so they they don't know what they ought to do. They don't know how they ought to live because they aren't coming to church. Ephesians 4 and verse 18 says having the understanding darkened being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Here look at chapter 3 and verse 20 again. <clears throat> Jesus said that men have what emotional response to the light? They do what? They hate the light because they love darkness. This is why people get so upset and antagonistic. And when darkness begins to prevail in a culture, the culture will eventually collectively try to do what they can to extinguish the light. I mean, a neighbor, a friend, somebody that I sat on a plane with, and I just had opportunity to say... She said her religion was not so crystal-centric. We believe everybody has a spark of divinity, the Quakers, we're all working our way back to God. And I just was sitting there, and I had my Bible open to John, I turned a couple pages and I said, "What do you think about this? Jesus saith unto them, "I'm the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me." And she said, "Oh, you're one of those kind and laid into me for a while." That happens from individuals. But do you know what, that hap- what, what happens when darkness starts to prevail more and more in a culture? A whole culture will collectively want to try to snuff out the light. That's why the governor of Washington State allowed the Freedom From Religion Foundation to place a placard right next to the Capitol's nativity set. <clears throat> and the placard read, religion is but myth and superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. There is only our natural world. That's right beside the nativity set in Washington State. In Washington, D.C., the Humanist Association spent thousands of dollars to put pictures of Santa on city buses with this caption, Why believe in God? Just be good for goodness' sake. The British Humanist Association caused a stir on a campaign on London buses. And the London buses read, there's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. In a Hong Kong newspaper, an atheist took out a quarter-page advertisement that read, you don't need to believe in God or have any religion. Just take a break, celebrate, and enjoy the holidays with your loved ones. That's the reason we need the holidays, and that's all we need. And in Times Square, an atheist group unveiled a huge billboard with a picture of Santa Claus on top of a picture of Jesus Hanging on the cross with a crown of thorns on his head, and the caption under Santa said, Keep the Mary, and the caption under the betrayal of Jesus said, Dump the myth. New York City, Times Square. <clears throat> Antagonism and opposition, and collectively will build to want to try to snuff out the witness of the light altogether. But though there is opposition from the realm of darkness, that last phrase in verse 5 tells us that it can't ultimately prevail. The word comprehend, um, I'm sorry, back in chapter 1 <coughs> in verse number 5. The light shines in darkness and the darkness <coughs> comprehended it not. That word means to hold down. And, and if you were talking about someone's intellect, it does mean to get a grasp on it. You're hoping, those students that have these exams coming up, you're hoping you can actually hold down the material you've been studying this semester, that you comprehend it and, and grab it. But when it's used of something other than the mind, it actually means to come on something in such a way as to overcome it. Uh, The only other time it's used, um, John uses the term right here in in his gospel. Look at chapter 12, and this is very instructive to us, so flip over there. John chapter 12 is the only other time that John uses it here. And chapter 12 in verse 35, (coughs) and what's especially helpful is it's talking in the same kind of expressions as chapter 1. Chapter 12 and verse 35, then Jesus said unto them, yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness do what? Come upon you. All right. And that is the exact same word as is translated comprehend. The light shineth in darkness and the darkness Comprehendeth it not, or the idea is the darkness doesn't overcome it. It can't snuff it out. As much as it might attempt to, it can't snuff it out. Church historians have taken note of the fact that it was in 1859 that Charles Darwin began his work, The Origin of the Species. And you know that's the single greatest stimulus to the humanist doctrine of evolution. Darwin had traveled to South America. He'd studied plant life, animal life, uh, the native and mostly uncivilized people that they met. But of one particular people group, Darwin, uh, that he he had studied, he ended up regarding them as something less than a full-fledged human being. And he said about a particular group of what have been called savages, and I'm just using the expressions, but he said about them that there was no unbridgeable gap between humans and animals. He saw, these, he saw this particular people group as supposedly being the bridge between animals and, and, and humans. But I mentioned historians noting that in the same year of 1859 that Darwin started penning that Origin of Species, a revival swept across Great Britain. And one of the consequences of the revival, particularly in England, is that missionaries were called and sent out across the globe, and some went to those very same South American savages, as Darwin actually referred to them. And one fruit... Of their ministry was the conversion of those men and women, and the witness that the darkness had not extinguished the light that was in them. Hebrews one and verse two declares that Jesus is the creator even of the ages of time. You know this expression, you may not know where it is, but Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11 tells us that God has set eternity in men's hearts. There is a reason why people who, even though they can't completely picture the details of of what the Bible describes about eternity, even if they can't picture all of that, maybe have never even had a biblical description of it, they know that there is more than this transient life. This isn't it. You cannot get away from this knowledge of moral accountability, the knowledge that there is an eternal God, that God is the judge. At one level, this is very sober. I mean, at one level, this confronts all of us with the issue of our lives being, how have you and will you respond to God's light? Have you been living conscious of the fact that the Christ of Christmas will someday be your judge and that his verdict regarding you will have eternal ramifications? What have you done? What will you do with the light that is in every man because of the life of the Creator and the Savior, Jesus Christ? Have you been, though, appropriately aware that Jesus Christ is the source of everything we know as life? Anything that I know as life, I know because Jesus Christ is the source of it. Sin and its darkness is the source of everything we know as death and destruction. And if you're here tonight, with a personal relationship to God, and if you are enjoying the life he gives, in particular, you're walking in the light of (coughs) of his special revelation. He's made himself known to you. It is because God, in his mercy, has taken the additional step of shining the light of the gospel that is in the face of Jesus Christ right into your sin, darkened heart, and mind. Dear friends, thank God that his light in Jesus has overcome and conquered your darkness. I wasn't born and you weren't born in what 1 John refers to as a child of the light. 1 John chapter 3 talks about the difference between children of light and children of darkness. The fact is none of us are born children of light. But through the grace and mercy of God, I did come to the light as a young child. And I know that some people have thought they missed out on something because they don't have big, some big dramatic testimony of, you know, life turning and whatever. I, for whatever reason, I can just tell you that I have never felt that way. I have always felt like it was an inestimable privilege of living this life in the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his word and all of what God declares to us in him. When I watch people, what they're doing with their life, stumbling around in the darkness of sin, trying to make it work, I say, thank you, Lord. But some of you and many of you are saved later. And right now, you can probably remember when God's grace just drove away your darkness and conquered it and turn the lights on for you. What a wonderful privilege any of us has to not only know the light of the creator of all life but to know the light of the savior and to know it living inside of us by the grace of God. Would you take your Bible or your hymnals and <clears throat> turn tonight to number 334.